Father, we thank you this morning for that truth. Thank you that this morning you are in charge and you are in control. And Father, we look to you, we turn our hearts towards you. Father, we ask that you would come right now and that you'd fill us with your Holy Spirit. That the eyes of our heart would be enlightened in order that we would know the hope to which you have called us, the riches of your glorious inheritance in the saints and your incomparably great power toward us who believe. That's what your word says. We stand upon that promise, Lord. And we trust that you will have your way today. We ask, Lord, that you would display your power in our lives, that it would come through our lives and all back to you for your honor and glory. Thanks for being good. Thank you that we get to worship you this morning. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. You guys can have a seat. Good morning. If you got your Bibles, grab them. Go to uh, Acts chapter 21-ish. We are going to do kind of a... uh, uh, a quick drive through or maybe fly over of Acts 21 all the way through Acts 28. Uh, in the Bible reading plan this past week, we were in Acts 21 through 25. Um, so we'll actually finish up Acts this week, but then we're also going to go into First uh, Peter in the Bible reading plan, and I'm probably going to be preaching from there next Sunday. And so I just wanted to give a flyover um, of these last several chapters in Acts because they're not the most popular chapters in Acts. Here, here, here's what I mean is that the, the story of the book of Acts is kind of God's big picture story of how the Holy Spirit, how God's Spirit uses God's people to take God's gospel, God's good news message to the ends of the earth. Jesus said uh, at the beginning of this book in Acts chapter 1 verse 8, he says, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in Judea, and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. That would be kind of like saying, you will be my witnesses in Berlin and in Ohio and then throughout all the United States okay, and to the ends of the world. He's starting local and it's moving out and that's what we've seen. The, the book of Acts is this picture of this movement of the gospel by God's spirit moving God's people uh, from a little um, place in Jerusalem uh, to the ends of the earth. And so we gotta take that into account as we look at this story. But, but when I say that these chapters aren't the most popular in the book of Acts, many places in the book of Acts, the first, in fact, before this, almost in every chapter, you were seeing miracles, you were seeing healings, you were seeing the supernatural, um, you would see mass salvations and mass baptisms. There's not that so much here in this, although, the, you know, Paul gets bit by a snake at one point and he shakes the snake off into the fire and people where everybody's sitting around watching to see if he's gonna die and he doesn't die. So you've got that. Um, you have him... Paul healing one guy um, on the island of Malta as he's journeying to Rome at the beginning of Acts chapter 28. But apart from that, what you have is this story of Paul um, kind of just in a tough situation. Uh, he's, he's journeying to Rome, as we'll look at, um, but it's just imprisonment and trial and beating and imprisonment and trial and beating and imprisonment and trial and beating. Sounds like fun, right? over and over um, and over again. And so just to give you a little bit of a clue where we're at, uh, Josh, if I can get the timeline up there, and this is important because that we understand the story, is that the ascension happened probably around AD 30. Jesus dies, he rises again, and then he rises up into heaven. Paul, who was formerly called Saul, you'll remember, was persecuting the church. He was giving consent to Stephen's death as they stoned him, Stephen, the first Christian martyr. Paul's, then God meets him on the Damascus Road, and that conversion happens about A.D. 34, okay? Now, it's 14 years, about A.D. 48, roughly 12 to 14 years, until Acts 13, 
when Paul gets sent out on his first missionary journey. Now between his conversion and then, he's, he's witnessing, he's also spending some time out in Arabia in the desert, we learn from the book of Galatians, and God is speaking to him, kind of downloading a bunch of stuff in a special way because he was an apostle. Um, but it's about 14 years till Acts 13 in AD 48 when he's, when he's sent out. Then around AD 59 is where we find ourselves in Acts 21 through 23. And in this time, Paul is journeying to Jerusalem, but he wants to only go to Jerusalem. He has to go to Jerusalem first because he eventually wants to get, wants to, get to Rome. Okay, now hang with me here. There's, there's a lot going on here, but the way I want to kind of frame this is I want to look at these uh, kind of like three cities that seem to play a primary role um, over this whole, whole section and kind of explain um, how these cities are kind of a picture of these different seasons that we go through in our lives. And those cities, I've mentioned a couple of them already, but they are Rome, Jerusalem, and Caesarea. Rome, Jerusalem, and Caesarea. Now let me give you a little, again, just let me tell you where I'm getting this from. In Acts 19, okay, verses 21 and 22, it's just kind of a little throwaway verse, but there are no throwaway verses, but just a little detail, this is important. Acts 19, 21 says, now after these events, Paul had been in Ephesus ministering for several years, it says, he resolved in the spirit to pass through Macedonia and Achaia and go to Jerusalem, saying, after I have been there in Jerusalem, I must also see Rome. So he purposes, he resolves in the spirit to go to Jerusalem and then to go to Rome. And if you study Paul's life from the other information that we have from him, from some of his letters, primarily Romans and at the end of 1 Corinthians, Paul, again, he's, he's been following Jesus now for, you know, pushing 25 years up until this point in Acts 21, and, but he's never been to Rome. And Paul has this great ambition to preach the gospel where nobody's ever heard of Jesus before. And so in Romans chapter 15, Paul says this. Again, Romans is a ton of doctrine but what it actually is, Romans is actually a missionary support letter, is that Paul has never been to Rome. There are some Christians there, most likely planted by Peter. Um, but Paul is writing a letter to them saying, I'm coming to you, and I would like you to support me as I come to you so that I can get to Spain, okay? And so Romans is kind of a missionary support letter, but Paul is laying out the gospel that he preaches so they, they can basically know that this guy's not a heretic and that he preaches the truth. But Paul says this at the very end of Romans, because remember, again, it's a letter to a church in Rome. He's never been there. He says, thus I make it my ambition to preach the gospel, not where Christ has already been named, lest I should build on someone else's foundation. But as it is written, those who have never heard of him will be told and see, and those who have never heard will understand. He says, for this reason, this is why I have so often been hindered in coming to you, but now, since I no longer have any room for work in these regions, the, region, the regions that he was currently in, he says, and I have longed for many years to come to you, come to Rome. I hope to see you in passing as I go to Spain and to be helped on my journey there by you once I have enjoyed your company for a little while. So Rome, as you study Paul, Rome is like this, it's this great ambition, it's, it's the, Rome for Paul is his calling. It's almost like the sense of th this idea of like destiny for Paul, is that he wants to get to Rome. He's seen fantastic things in Ephesus and Galatia and Philippi and Macedonia and these, these different cities and regions, but he, j he wants to get to Rome because he wants to get to Rome because that's like the end of the earth, and then he's going to go even beyond that to Spain. 
And what we're going to see, a little spoiler alert here, at the end of the book of Acts, in Acts 28, is the, the, or the, the story of the book of Acts ends with Paul in Rome preaching the gospel. Freely. He's under house arrest, but people are coming and going, and he's preaching the gospel. And so um, there's a sense in which Jesus' uh, command to preach the gospel in Judea and Samaria to the ends of the earth <coughs> um, comes to fruition throughout the book of Acts, and he is going to go there. But r- here's what I want you to get. Rome is the idea of Paul's ambition, his calling for his destiny. It's the place that he wants to get to. Jerusalem is another city. In Jerusalem, here's the idea with Jerusalem. Jerusalem means suffering. Jerusalem means opposition. It means persecution. All throughout the book of Acts, if you were following this story, is that every time Paul tells people that he's going to Jerusalem, they all go, Paul, that's a bad idea. They do not like you in Jerusalem. Okay, Acts chapter 20, verses 22 and 23, even Paul knows this. Even the Spirit of God is telling him this. He says, and now behold, I am going to Jerusalem, constrained by the Spirit, not knowing what will happen to me there except that the Holy Spirit testifies to me in every city that imprisonments and afflictions await me. Paul knows, even the Spirit is telling Paul, that something bad's going to happen to him in Jerusalem. In the next chapter, Acts chapter 21, there's a prophet that stands up. And it says this, Acts 21, I'll start in verse 8. He says, On the next day we departed and we came to Caesarea, and having entered the house of Philip the evangelist, who was one of the seven, we stayed with him. He had four unmarried daughters who prophesied. While we were staying for many days, a prophet named Agabus came down from Judea, and coming to us, he took Paul's belt and bound his own feet and his hands, and he said, thus says the Holy Spirit, this is how the Jews at Jerusalem will bind the man who owns this belt and delivers them into the hands of the Gentiles. So this prophet named Agabus comes from another town, here's Paul's in town, he's like, man, I got a word for Paul. And he comes over there, and he's like, hey, Paul, I got a word for you. And you know, if anybody's ever said that to you, you're like, oh, okay, you're going to encourage me or something? Not, not Agabus. He's like, Paul, let me see your belt. I'm like, okay, this is probably isn't going to go well. He takes his belt, and then he binds his own hands with Paul's belt, and he says, the one who owns this belt, in the same way, they're going to be bound like this when they go to Jerusalem. And he goes on and says, and when we heard this, we and the people there urged him not to go to Jerusalem. Then Paul answered, he said, what are you doing, weeping and breaking my heart like this? For I am ready not only to be imprisoned, but even to die into Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus. And it says, and since he would not be persuaded, we ceased and said, let the will of the Lord be done. So you've got Rome, ambition calling, you've got Jerusalem, suffering, opposition. And then you have Caesarea. Caesarea, and this one you might not have noticed, but turn to Acts chapter 24 and verse 27. Caesarea is a town just a little bit north of Jerusalem, okay, where Paul spent some some time in prison. This is where many of the trials that happened in in chapters 21 through 25 happen. as he's testifying to people that could set him free. But in Acts chapter 24, Paul is in Caesarea, and verse 27 says this. Again, a little detail that's important to the story. It says, when two years had passed, Felix was succeeded by Portius Festus, and and desiring to do the Jews a favor, Felix left Paul in prison. Here's what that means. Like, Paul, if you'd read up to this point, he'd been on trial, he'd testified several times saying, I'm not doing anything wrong, I'm just testifying to, you know, the resurrection and to what God's done in my life, but the Jews are all bent out of shape about this. And so these guys, these Roman um, 
governors who have the authority to let Paul go, uh, they, they don't do it because they want to appease this big political party, kind of like a big lobbyist group is basically what the Jewish leaders were at this point. <coughs> and they want to appease them so they keep Paul in jail because it pleases them. And here in this little verse, here's what, here's what Paul does at Caesarea. He just sits around in jail. Two years of his life. Just, that's all we know. There he is. Caesarea. What's happening in Caesarea, Paul? Nothing. Or it seems that way. Just sitting here. If Rome is our ambition, our calling, and Jerusalem is suffering and opposition, Caesarea means waiting. And not just waiting, but mundane waiting. You know, there's a difference between waiting for Christmas morning and you know it's coming and there's an anticipation and you're a little kid and you're all excited you can't wait to open the presents it's not that type of waiting it's just a you know it's like going to the BMV taking except you don't even know your number like, I don't know they didn't give me a number I guess they'll call me sometime maybe so we got Rome Jerusalem and Caesarea Ambition, suffering, and waiting. And just a couple lessons from this, and again, we'll get more into the text here, that I think are, are helpful for our life. And these, these images have just been, been impactful to me, and I trust that God will use them in your life as well. But number one, there's a way to get through Rome, or there's a way to get to Rome that bypasses Jerusalem. There's a way to get to Rome, the place of our calling, our ambition, our dreams, our destiny. There's a way to get there that bypasses Jerusalem's suffering. It's the easy route. If you can throw that map up there for a second, Josh. <coughs> um, which end does this come out of? Oh, don't. There we go. Uh, but when Paul is purposing in the Spirit, resolving in the Spirit to go to Rome... He's right here. He's over here a little bit, and then he's over here. Over here is probably from where he writes the letter to the book, or the letter to the church at Rome, which is over here. Um, and he's telling them that he wants to come, and he has this ambition, this desire to come over there. Here's where he's at. This is his ambition. This is his calling. This is where he wants to go. So you'd think, well, man, if that's where you want to go, Paul, whoop, there's the most direct route, straight across. But that's not the route Paul takes. Paul's here, and his ambition, his calling, his destiny is here, but he goes here, to Jerusalem. Here's what I want to say this morning, if you hear what I'm saying, is that, like, we all have a Rome. We have a thing that we feel like God's called us to, something that he has for us, an ambition, a calling. That's not wrong. You are God's workmanship, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God has prepared in advance for you to do, Okay? It's not wrong at all. But the way to get to Rome is through Jerusalem. And here's the one detail we know, going back to that passage in Romans chapter 15. Um, I read chapter 15, verses 20 through 24. Here's what verse 25 says. The one detail as to why we know uh, a little bit, at least why Paul was so adamant to go to Jerusalem. He says, at present, however, I'm going to Jerusalem, bringing aid to the saints is that Paul had been in Jerusalem before, and um, 
he wants to go back there because he saw some of the poverty and some of the people that were suffering. And so he'd been traveling around these different regions taking up an offering for these people. And so he goes there, he goes there to serve, to lay down his life. And guys, there, there's a way to pursue the thing that God has laid on our hearts that can seem like the right thing, and yet we can, if we do it and without the attitude of being a servant first, then we bypass Jerusalem. And there's something about Jerusalem and Caesarea, the suffering, the opposition, the waiting, that God wants to do in us, that he wants to work in us. It's the thing that makes us life like, like Christ. Jesus said, whoever wants to come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. If anyone, if anyone wants to follow me, he's got to take up his cross and do so. In fact, Luke, of course, writes the book of Acts. He also writes the gospel of Luke. Ta-da! Of course, hence the name. And if you look at the accounts here of, of Paul standing before all these um, different officials and the Jews, and they're accusing him, and they're imprisoning him, and beating him, and not letting him go, or whatever. It very much mirrors the life of Christ. As you remember in Luke's gospel, he, Jesus also has this ambition to go to Jerusalem and to suffer and die, that he's going to be raised in glory. But he sets his face like flint to go through the suffering, to get to the glory, to get to the glory on the other side. And Paul could have saved himself a lot. He could have saved himself about two to three years of, pri- of prison time if he would have just jumped right over to Rome. He would have uh, um, uh, saved himself some public beatings and public shamings. I mean, there's one story in here. It's so frustrating. Makes me so makes me so angry. As Paul was standing before um, uh, kind of these these Jewish officials and this one Roman governor who's who's able to re- to release him, and the Jewish high priest of the time, Ananias, he just tells one of his homeboys that's standing down by Paul to just smack him in the face. Now, can I just be honest with you for a second? I mean, if some dude just for no reason comes up and just, just smacks me in the face, I mean, I know Jesus said to turn the other cheek, okay? But man, yeah, (laughs) you know what I'm saying? Like, like that's, we're ready. It's on. You know what I'm saying? But like Paul, just little things like that, that Paul could have missed by just simply going to Rome. But the way to Rome is through Jerusalem. Guys, before, before you are an apostle, prophet, an evangelist, a shepherd, a teacher, whatever, we are first and foremost, every one of us, we are to be servants. Amen. Paul doesn't do it in every letter, but in most of his letters, he starts off the letter in just a very traditional, formal way, just stating who it is that's writing the letter. And many times he'll just say, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, too, and then he'll write. But many times, I think it's in three books, Romans, Philippians, and Titus, he inserts the word servant in there, too. And whenever he does, he doesn't say, Paul, an apostle, and a servant. He always says, Paul, a servant and an apostle. The servant always comes first is that if we want to get to where God wants us to be and we feel he's laid something on our heart and it's important and we have a burden, we have a destiny, we have a calling, that's fine, that's good. 
But the way there is through the path of being a servant, suffering. Now, can I be honest with you? I did not understand this in my 20s. I did not understand this. And um, I don't think it's true for all 20-somethings. But how many 20-somethings do we have in here today? You're in your 20s. Okay. Let me just say, blanket statement, I am sure that you are all not as bullheaded and stubborn as I was in my 20s. But I had things in my 20s that God laid on my heart and that I wanted to go after and I wanted to pursue. And I kept telling him what the most direct route was. God, I'm in Macedonia. I'm in Asia. Let's go to Rome. Jeru- no, no, no. He's, no, go to Jerusalem. Go- Why? That doesn't make any sense. Listen to me. Just because your calling might be clear, that does not mean that the path to get there is going to be straight. Okay? You, you can have a very clear calling, burden, in your heart. That is not, you cling to that. Paul never lets go of Rome. He gets there eventually. I mean, there's shipwreck and, you know, he's in chains the whole way, but he gets there. He doesn't let go of it. But it's not a direct route. And over time, God works these things out in our life. But as disciples, we choose first and foremost to even let go of our dreams, our calling, our passions, and we're first servants. Amen? Number two, what do you do when you're in Jerusalem? When you're in the place of suffering, when you're in the place of opposition, um, when you're in the place of where things are difficult, it's a special season of difficulty and of conflict, where people are against you, what do you do? Two things here I see in Paul's life. Number one is stick to your story, and number two, focus on the fundamentals of the faith. Let me explain what I mean. Number one, stick to your story. Throughout um, these passages here, or these chapters as you read them, in chapter 22, also 26, and Paul dabbles it in a few other times as he has these opportunities to stand and testify, usually before these courts or these kings or these govern- governors, very important people who all had the power to release them. Over and over again, he tells his story. He tells them of how he once was a persecutor and how now he's a servant of God, how once he was persecuting the church and now he, he loves the church. He tells his story over and over and over. And guys, just this, this is going to be very, very simple, or it may sound very, very simple, but I, I just want to say this to you, is that whatever your story is of how God has saved you, it's important, and it's glorious. And you know, we, it, I mean, if we can just be straight for a second, we all, especially those of us that I grew up in the church, we want that testimony of like, oh, I was, you know... I was an alcoholic and I was doing drugs and I was doing all this and that. And then, you know, one day I just met Jesus on the Damascus Road and, you know, the, the bright light shone around me. And then I was supernaturally saved and I never did that stuff again, right? Like, we, all, we want that testimony. Sometimes when we grow up in church, we're like, ah, I just, I don't know. I accepted Jesus into my heart when I was seven. Or like, God could never use that. Yes, he could. Whatever God does is awesome all the time. And praise the Lord that, man, I'm praying that my kids have that testimony. I'm praying that my kids have the testimony. Well, man, I 
grew up in church, and yeah, I never got into anything real bad, and I just, you know, but God saved me when I was seven. Praise the Lord that he saved you when he was seven, that the Spirit of God can speak to a seven-year-old's heart and lay hold of it and cause him to trust in him for salvation. Greatest miracle that will ever happen is God saving somebody. Don't be ashamed of your testimony. Over and over through these chapters, Paul sticks to his story. That's my story, and I'm sticking to it. Was that a country song? Lord, forgive me for quoting a country song. I've already established with you many times that there will be no country music in heaven, I guarantee you. Um, Not going to happen. But know your story and, and stick to it. And the other thing is, focusing on the fundamentals of the faith. As, as Paul stands up and he testifies before this Roman uh, tribune, just a Roman official, and then he testifies before this governor Felix, and then he testifies before the governor Festus, Felix and Festus, and then he testifies before this king Agrippa. Over and over and over again, here's what he, like he doesn't, he doesn't give, some, he doesn't just wax elo- eloquent about some, you know, fancy kind of deep uh, leadership principles and kind of some sort of nuance of the faith or whatever. Look at chapter 24 and verse 25 and get this picture in your head. Paul has been in prison already. He now has an opportunity to testify before the man who has the power to release him, Okay? And it says that his wife, Drusilla, who was also Jewish, came in with him. I read in some commentaries that uh, Drusilla, and again, I I don't know whether this is true or not, but just for what it's worth, that they said Drusilla was a really good-looking woman. And so here comes, you know, Governor Felix and and his good-looking wife, Drusilla, and they're, you know, all decked out, and they have the power to release Paul. Now, I'll be honest with you, um, in total transparency, there's times when I speak in front of people that are important, that have a certain amount of uh, pomp or prestige or position or title or what have you, and I'll be honest, I'm, I'm, I'm tempted to just kind of make myself look good. I'm, I'm tempted to just maybe kind of tell them something nice that maybe they'll want to hear and we'll kind of encourage them and build them up and, you know, maybe we can build a common bridge and then, you know, I can have some influence in their life or whatever. That's a temptation. And I would bet that Paul maybe struggled with that, but he definitely didn't give into it. Look at Paul's three-point sermon before the king and queen who have the power to release him from prison. Verse 25, 24. It says, and as Paul reasoned to them about righteousness, self-control, and the coming judgment, Felix was alarmed and said, uh, go away for the present, and when I get an opportunity, I will summon you. And at the same time, he hoped that money would be given to him by Paul, so he sent for him often and conversed with him. Paul has an opportunity to share something with the people that have the power to release him, and here's Paul's three-point sermon. Righteousness, self-control, and the coming judgment. I mean, how different is that from much of the goofiness that we see in American evangelicalism? When you're in Jerusalem, when you're facing difficulty, when you're facing persecution, when you're facing opposition, you stick to your story of what God has done in your life and you stick to the fundamentals of the faith. Don't try to get cute. Don't try to get cute. Um, Cuteness in babies is awesome. Cuteness in preachers makes you want to throw up. Don't try to get cute. 
way too many, not just preachers, but also Christians, trying to be cute. Trying to show the world how, oh, we're just like you. We're just like, remember, I remember Matt's sermon from a while back. What was the thing you did that you thought was cool that wasn't cool? You bought hemp necklaces at the, oh yeah, and Jill had a bunch of butterfly barrettes in her hair. Remember Matt's illustration a while back from his sermon? He thought he was cool, but he wasn't cool. <laughs> Don't try to be cool. Don't try to be cool, because you're not. Sorry. <laughs> um, you're not. You focus on the fundamentals of the faith. And when you do, and you are, or maybe you are tempted to just tickle somebody's ears, remember the fundamentals of the faith, that there is, that God is about righteousness. The Bible says in Hebrews that without holiness, no one will see the Lord. Righteousness, self-control, control and the coming judgment. Then lastly, what do you do when you're in Caesarea? What do you do when you're just waiting? What do you do when you've been faithful? You've stuck to the fundamentals of the faith. You've shared your testimony. You've not backed down. You've not tickled tickled people's ears, and yet this is their response. Eh. Eh. Remember, Paul, in most of his missionary journeys, I mean, in Ephesus, he's, I mean, people are coming out, and they're just wanting Paul to pray for handkerchiefs and for aprons, and they're taking him back, and, and the, because Paul touched him, and then they'd lay him on the sick people. Those people would get healed. He's seeing mass salvations, baptisms, all sorts of things in many different places. And now, here's, and it's another thing that makes this section unique, is Paul's testifying to the resurrection and telling his story and preaching the gospel and the fundamentals of the faith over and over, and everybody's response is, eh. Mm. that's right that's right but Paul stays the course he doesn't give in I'm sure he battled discouragement but here's what I think you do what I think you do when you're in Caesarea when you're waiting you have to remember and this is what we'll see in Paul's life here you have to remember the big picture and you have to remember that God can change everything in a day just like that. A day with the Lord is like a thousand years, and a thousand years is like a day. Again, God's not on our timetable. Two years seems long to us, but to God, it's nothing. Yet at the same time, God can do in one day what would take man a thousand years to do. Boom, right now. And so that's essentially what, what happens, is there is a day then after Paul's in, in prison for two years, he gets another chance to testify, and again, there, he, he testifies, and their, their response is just kind of like, eh, I don't know, and he said, so then he says, I appeal to Caesar. And the story is, is that Paul then gets kind of an armed escort, although it's very difficult, and they get shipwrecked and everything else, and then in 26 through, in 27 and into 28, they go on this long journey uh, overseas, and, um, and, but they eventually get to Rome. And that's how the story of the book of Acts ends. But I don't know about you, but for me, out of all of them, Rome, Jerusalem, and Caesarea, like, like Rome, we don't struggle with Rome. Rome's where we want to get. We want to get to that place in our life where we're doing what we feel uh, God has called us to do. And Jerusalem, of course, stinks, suffering. But, but Caesarea, waiting, mundane waiting, that's like its own type of suffering, is it not? I hate waiting. I hate it. I do not 
in my natural self, have a large amount of patience. If you're going to have 27 checkout lanes at Walmart, have more than two of them open, right? What are we doing? Like there's 20 and two of them, why do, now I gotta wait in line. You see, I'm just telling you. Like, I don't, I don't like waiting. But remembering that in everything, boom, in an instant, God can change things. You gotta remind yourself your story. Here, here's kind of what I wanna, one of the things I just felt like I wanted to say this morning as I was thinking about all this is, to some of you, like you don't see what God's doing in your life right now. You're stuck in Caesarea. You can't get out. You're in prison there. And you've got to remember that all that God did leading up to this point and how he saved you and how he provided for you, how he redeemed you and how he cleansed you and how he washed you and he helped you overcome sin in your life. But you're like, Lord, I'm going to Rome. No, you're stuck in Caesarea. You're stuck in Caesarea right now. You need to remember the whole story, and then you need to remember that in an instant, God can change your circumstance. Tomorrow, he could change your circumstance. I don't know that he is. You might be in, stuck in Caesarea for another two years. I know that's encouraging. <laughs> but you don't know. It's up to God. But be faithful. Can I tell you, did I ever, I, don't, I was thinking about this this morning. I feel like I would have done this. But then I was thinking, I don't know that I ever did. I don't know if I ever told you guys the story of how we got little Jordy, our youngest one. You know some of the story, and so forgive me if I've shared this already, but it's very applicable. Um, man, probably three or four years ago, I don't remember when, uh, I, all I know is I was sitting at Wall House, coffee. Um, but that was before Amish Country Donuts was open, though, Aaron and Christina, so that's why I wasn't there. Um, otherwise, I'd have been there. But... Uh, Thank Aaron and Christina for the free donuts, by the way, this morning that they bring it. Anyway, um, side note. But I was sitting at Wall House, at Wall House, and I remember it would have been back when I just started the series through Luke, which took us two years to go through. And it was early on in Luke. It was like around chapter three, because I was preaching on John the Baptist. And I was sitting there studying on John the Baptist. And again, you can believe what you want. I'm just telling you what happened. But I was sitting there by myself in the booth, and God spoke to me. And I don't use that, throw that term around lightly. I believe there's regular leadings of the Holy Spirit in our life, day in and day out. But I've only had this happen one or two times, maybe three times in my life, where I just felt like God speak to me. It wasn't audible, but it was as clear as day. And here's what he said. He said, you're going to adopt. Very clear, crystal clear. And so I went home that night, and I told Hannah, I said, sweetie, uh, I got to tell you something. And I don't know how your marriage is, but like most of it, like we, we talk every day, but a lot of times when I go, sweetie, I got to tell you something. It's usually not good. And so she was like, what? <laughs> and I said, and then I started to try to tell her and I just got choked up and I got very emotional and began to cry a little bit. She's like, what, what, what's going on? And, and I said, sweetie, I felt like God spoke to me today. And he said, we're going to adopt. And she's like, oh, well, that's good, and, you know, and, and uh, she's like, well, what, you know, what do we need to do? And, um, and again, that's just, I praise God for my wife. I said that, and she didn't question it all. She's just like, okay, well, that's okay, whatever the Lord's will is. And I said, I don't know. I feel like we don't got to do anything. Makes perfect sense, right? Because, <laughs> you know, you got to take classes, and you got to get certified and all this, licensed, all this different stuff. 
And I said, I don't know. I just feel like I was just supposed to tell you. That's, I've done my part now. So we did that. I told her that. And then I did nothing. <laughs> I just waited. And about a year and a half later, it was Sunday morning, uh, June 17th of 2018. Um, we were still at the old theater. Zach and Katie, who are good friends of ours and are in our small church, um, they have uh, fostered and adopted a total of five kids now. And they didn't have all of them that they have now back then, but they had a couple. And they had this little boy at church. And I saw him before the service. I think Zach was doing a safety team that morning. And so Jordy was sitting. I mean, it would have been at the other place, but in the front row there. It's before the service. I just went up and I sat beside him. I said, hey, buddy, how you doing? He goes, doing, doing good, doing good. And uh, just talked with him a little bit. And then when we got home that day, uh, I um, said something to Hannah about him. Or actually, I think Hannah's maybe said something to me because she, she'd talked with Jordan too. And she said, all of a sudden she goes, do you think this is the one that we're supposed to adopt? And I said, I don't know. Maybe. Let's pray about it. <laughs> and so we just continued to wait. That was Sunday. On Thursday, Hannah was at home and, and she was just she was praying about Jordan as she was washing the floors. Remember that, sweetie? You said you were washing the floors. She was washing the floors. She was praying about it. And as she was praying about Jordan, Katie called and wondered if we could watch him that weekend for four days because they had to head out of town. Um, and she'd already cleared it with the caseworker, which was kind of a little mini miracle in of itself because we were not licensed to do respite, anything like that. But um, she told the caseworker that, you know, we, we were their pastors and um, so uh, they let it go. And so we... We watched Jordan for four days that weekend, another little answer to prayer, and then at the end of that weekend, he went back, and we sat down with our boys, and we said, boys, what would you think if we would tr pursue adopting Jordan? And <laughs> they go into, uh, yeah, yeah, you know, they kind of grunted around, made some noises, um, yeah, we're good with it, they were good with it. So then we began to say, okay, well, let's, let's pursue this. And so they were, um, Zach and Katie were licensed through Tusk County Job and Family Services. We called them to see if they were holding any classes for us to get licensed. They said, no, um, there's nothing going on here over the summer. We don't have any classes to the fall. But call the Ohio Christian Children's Home up in Worcester because they sometimes do classes over the summer. But they're all over Northeast Ohio. And they told Hannah, they're like, you're probably going to have to drive a little ways to get it, to get it done. And so uh, she called them. And she explained the situation to him and said, there's one boy that we're trying to get, and so we're trying to get this done as quick as possible. And the lady goes, well, we, we do have some, some classes uh, coming up here in July, and then just a, like a week or two. She goes, where are you located at? And Hannah says, well, we live in Walnut Creek. And the lady on the other end of the phone goes, oh, my goodness. This must be a God thing. She goes, we're starting classes in two weeks, and we're holding them at Newgrounds Cafe, which was five minutes from our house at the time. And they were expedited courses, and so over the course of three weeks then, in July, we got all our stuff done. By August, we'd had our home study done, we were licensed, and we got him in October. And I say that as just one illustration, an example of, and I just feel like this is to encourage somebody today, it's like you're, you're sitting there in Caesarea, and you've even been through Jerusalem, and you're suffering, and you're waiting, and Rome's just not coming. 
But brother, sister, I'm telling you that in an instant, God can change everything. Absolutely nothing's too difficult for him. Don't give up. Don't stop trusting. Don't believe the lie that he's forgotten about you. I'll tell you what, when you're sitting in Caesarea in a prison cell like Paul was all by yourself, man, it's in, the, it's in that time. Like in the suffering, you're, you're more like, because you're in the battle in that moment, you're more aware of God's presence. You know, in, in Jerusalem, it's like, hey, they're either going to kill me and I'm going home to glory or God's going to deliver me. But in Caesarea, it's like, Reminding you that I'm here, Father. You ever done that? You still see me? And man, the devil's lies come. Um, you know, as we were singing that one song earlier, when I stand accused by my regrets and the devil roars his empty threats. Isn't that true? And he does that best when we're sitting in Caesarea, just waiting. You know, one of the things that's been, and again, I'm not trying to cap anybody here in, in a mean way or make any sort of political statement necessarily, but one of the things that's been so evident in, to me in 2020, and I'm sure to many of you, is that the national media definitely has agendas, okay? And here's one of the things, it's just been such a picture to me, and you know, God bless him, I pray he saves them all, but... Um, just, be, like, just because they say something loud and just because they say something consistently and just because they say something confidently doesn't mean that it's true, right? But hear me. Brothers and sisters, the devil will say it loud, he'll say it consistently, and he'll say it confidently over and over. But that does not mean it's true. What God says is true. And what God says is that he's going to get you through. He's going to get you through. Worship team, you can come up. We're going to close. And again, I, I just kind of didn't have time to get into this many chapters here, obviously, and cover all the details. But as you read the story, I would encourage you, if you didn't read it this past week, just go back and read it again, 21 through 28. And just how... God gets them through. It's a mess. It's a mess. Arrest, trial, preaches. Eh. Arrest, trial, preaches. Eh. Sits in Caesarea in prison for two years. Nothing. But eventually, the story ends in 28 with God gets them through and he's in Rome. The place that he always wanted to get to. The place that he felt called to. The burden that God had laid on his heart. I just want to tell you this morning, guys, that God is going to get you through. He's going to get you through. And it's not going to be a straight line, and it might not be as direct as what you thought, but he's going to get you through. And the way he works in our life is amazing, and it's always for his honor and for his glory. Um, I was meeting with somebody, just a discipleship meeting this past week on Friday, and we were studying Ephesians 2. And uh, we just were looking at the first 10 verses together. And of course, the first couple of verses of chapter two basically say, they, they end, or verse three says, um, we were all, uh, like the rest, by nature, objects of wrath. 
I said, you know, and we said, like, how would you sum up those three verses? And we just put, you know, in layman's terms, we're a hot mess. We're a hot mess. But then the end of that passage ends, verse 10, chapter 2, says, you are God's workmanship created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for you to do. And that word for workmanship, it's literally in the Greek, it's the word masterpiece, work of art. And so we just titled that section together, From Hot Mess to Masterpiece. (laughs) From Hot Mess to Masterpiece. That's what God is doing in all of our lives. But he takes time to do it. And just one quote here. I'm not real familiar with this song. It came up, I was studying last night, and it came up in my Spotify random feed as I was studying and listening to some music. It's a song by John Lucas that's called Time. Here's what it says. Or one little stands in this. It says, crown him for he's faithful, and crown him for he's worthy, and crown him for he is good. Crown him for his promises that cut through all the blindness of children that have barely understood. That's how it is sometimes. We just don't see. He goes on, he says, the beauty that has come and the beauty yet to come and the beauty that is yours and that is mine and the death that produces life and that we are made alive. And then he just repeats these three lines. By the king who paints beauty over time. By the king who paints beauty over time. By the king who paints beauty over time. And I just want to encourage you this morning. That guys, that is what God is doing in your life. He's painting something beautiful. You may not see it yet, but just keep trusting him. He's the one doing it. It's coming. Amen? Father, thanks for everybody here this morning. Father, whether um, each individual here finds themselves in Rome or in Jerusalem or in Caesarea this morning, I pray that you just meet them there. I pray that you'd strengthen their hearts. And I pray that you'd get them through. As messy as it is, get them through. Do what only you can do, Lord. We thank you that this is what you do. It's what you do. You get us through. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Stand with me, please.